2: Welcome to the New Books Network. On today's episode of the New Books Network podcast, we are speaking to Eden Collinsworth, who is a former media executive and business consultant. Her book is titled What the Ermines Saw The Extraordinary Journey of Leonardo da Vinci's Most Mysterious Portrait with Penguin Random House. Collinsworth has been president of Arbor House Publishing Company and founder of the monthly magazine Buzz and vice president at Hearst Corporation which served to establish her career in writing repertoire Collinsworth and Associates is her Beijing consulting company that specializes in intercultural communication Eden why did you start writing about the portrait or the portrait painting known as Lady with an Ermine and when did you start writing
3: Well I um saw the the painting in Krakow uh Poland about 3 years ago um and not frankly being surprised that that's exactly where I, it was I started to look into how it got there and um I came back um uh, to London which is where I live and um started to look into its history and realized that you know frankly the owners that it had over the course of the 530 years it took to actually arrive in that museum in Krakow, Poland, the the owners were so remarkable and the journey itself was so um, unbelievable that, you know, I I, I felt it was um, something that not only I would be interested in a better understanding but and pursuing, but um, that there would be a, a general reading public that might be interested as well. So that that's, that's why I, I started it and when I started it. And I, I was researching it and writing it during lockdown, which made it a bit of a challenge, but obviously not impossible. And quite honestly, it gave me a mental life that I wouldn't have already I wouldn't have otherwise had being locked locked in my flat for um, close to 4 months
2: who else had you spoken with especially maybe academic scholars on the topic in preparation for your book and also have you done extensive interviews with others
3: yeah so i um i'm not an art expert or art historian um, so, um, I, I, I was, I felt very responsible for getting, uh, the story as factually correct as I could, but it was, you know, it was a, a situation where the, the, the picture went missing for 230 years and often is the case, well, almost always is the case that the historians and experts f- correctly, um, so, I hesitate to speculate, uh, you know, on what happens to a painting when it disappears. So I did speak to and confer with a great many, um, you know, known Leonardo experts, um, you know, directors of museums, curators, art historians. Um, I actually uh, was helped enormously by uh, various people both in Milan and Krakow, and. Um, so i i in my best efforts i i i i did the responsible thing and i also plowed my way through some 60 or 70 books um you know that that some of which had only tangential connections with my subject but all were very helpful
2: no interviews
3: yes well i mean the interviews were part of the process so i would go to uh for example i interviewed extensively um the gentleman who organized the um uh Luke Sison who organized or or was instrumental in organizing the Big Leonardo show here at the National Gallery um that featured Lady with an ermine, which was the last time it actually traveled. And um he is somebody who has worked at the Metropolitan New York and now is overseeing, you know, the uh Fitzwilliam uh, museum in Cambridge, and you know he was hugely helpful. And he then, in turn, me in turn got me to other people with whom I spoke. So, uh, yes, to answer your question, there was a lot of interviewing, uh, and uh, you know, uh, uh, after we were locked down, most of it was done by Zoom or over the phone. But that didn't diminish the importance of it, and it was all, um, y- you know, usually helpful.
2: Where is the original painting of Lady with an Ermine now? Is it in a museum?
3: Yes it's in the very museum where I, I, I saw it 3 years ago which is the National Museum it's a, a um it's the Polish National Museum in Krakow Poland and um how it got there w- 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 is is quite fascinating and that is that that really is the journey that I the narrative journey I took um and brought um, one hopes brought the the reader along in terms of uh, in terms of the book
2: who is the lady of the painting and can you tell us more about the period um which is like the late 1400s and early 1500s
3: uh-huh well uh, the the um the person i should start with it's you know difficult to know how far back to go but you know italy in that period of time was not italy as we know it today it was the it was a, a kind of an assimilation of what are called or were called city states. And so uh, each was run typically by actually a, a, somebody who was previously a mercenary and, um, and, and they were, you know, they they positioned themselves as, as in a ducal way overseeing a certain area of of the of what is now Italy, and so um, the man who commissioned the portrait was uh, Ludovico Sforza, who was the Duke of Milan, and the subject of the picture is a woman by by the name of Cecilia Cararina, who in fact was not in you know was was more girl than woman she was so young i mean the the estimates range from as young as twelve to no no older than um fourteen and she was um Luvicchio's mistress at the time, and she was completely remarkable. she um spoke languages, she wrote poetry, she wrote music. Um, unfortunately uh, almost always is the case that these remarkable women simply become footnotes, you know, most, especially if they're mistresses. And so it was difficult to find much information on her, but the information I did find, you know, indicated a, an absolutely remarkable and person. And what sets
2: this Da Vinci painting apart from maybe his other words?
3: Well, it, it's relatively small, by the way, so it's about twelve inches by fifteen. And what makes it unique, uh, certainly at the time was the the fact that she's not looking directly out at the viewer, so to speak, or she's not in profile. she's it, It's as though he's captured her in a moment where she was moving forward but something has caught her attention and she's looking back and she's holding which makes it even you know more mysterious frankly and compelling is that in her arms she's holding an ermine which is you know a, another way of 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 uh, referring to a an a, a weasel a white ermine and it too has turned you know in sync and is looking at the same person or object uh, you know a, a, off the picture plane Um, you know, so it's incredibly intriguing and unique in that it was the first time a portrait was rendered that way in terms of, you know, how he positioned, um, the subject.
2: And the painting changed hands. When did it start as far as it being this legacy of going from one place or person to another?
3: Right. Well, the what happened uh, uh during the lifetime of of both the person who commissioned it and the subject was that ludovico um sforza was which is was was typical um of the of, of the time he at a young age he was betrothed to another the daughter of another ducal family and this was the way they quite quite honestly kept things you know the status quo they simply intermarried so it was a form of diplomacy and um and he had no choice in the matter um and and although I think he was p- passionate and in, in love with um of uh Cicilia, um she had to go and so you know she left the castle and um she left with the portrait um, and so there's a safe assumption that It 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 was kept within her family, although it just went missing. I mean, there's no way of really verifying that. And the next um, recorded owner was this hugely unconventional, a Polish princess um, whose son bought it for her while he was in Italy. So again, it's safe to assume that, regardless of who was owning it during that period of time, because he purchased it in Italy it it might have very well remained there although you know there are all sorts of other rumors but you know it's impossible to verify much of anything so it it was held uh through very turbulent times uh privately within this uh, Pol- a very aristocratic polish family which is you know, to, to shoot forward to the present time, which is the reason it in fact is in a, in in now at the museum in Krakow, the family in 2012 or 13 um, donated their collection, including this remarkable picture to the Polish nation. And that, that's why it's in the museum in Krakow.
2: An earlier episode Here, explored Tuscany as a financial center in the world. How is the House of Medici a financial center?
3: Well, you know, Florence positioned itself as as a merchant republic. And it did this by establishing these trade routes with Syria and Egypt and Arabia and it was the the wool guilds in in uh, Milan. I'm so sorry in uh, Florence that provided the Medicis with a very lucrative textile business. And they were the first to create what is now known as the double booking system for tracking credits and debits. They were incredibly capable and astute financially. And they moved um, into the financial services, so to speak. And by the 15th century, the Bank of Medici was the largest in Europe. And it was their patronage that uh, underwrote the artists and musicians and architects Um, of, of, um, uh, you know, uh, of the city. So they were, you know, primarily they were the responsible party for actually putting the city on the map in terms of, you know, it's, you know, everything that had to do with the arts. Also, you wrote
2: about Vinci, which is the birth town of Da Vinci. How did Vinci influence his art?
3: well he he was born there and and you know uh, to to be clear he was illegitimate so he, he was the you know his father was a, a young um man who of a from a prosperous family who had a you know a kind of a one night stand with um a, a a local girl and and so um he was brought up by this young man's um, parents, um, and uh, in other words, it was his it was the, the his, Da Vinci's grandparents who really brought him up, and he lived in um, Da Vinci until um, until he was twelve. At which point, he joined his father in Florence. So he didn't really. I mean, Vinci is a is a small kind of mountain to town. Uh, on the outskirts of, or not far, I should say, from Florence. So I would say that there was, you know, other than living there, it, it didn't really impact, it didn't influence his art. Give us insight into Vin- in Da
2: Vinci's design of Milan and those sanitary arrangements that you write about. What happened after the plague?
3: Well, you know, it was, um, even though this was during the Renaissance and there were huge advancements made, Um, For the most part, the the, the big swatches of the population didn't enjoy those or, you know, weren't given the opportunity of of utilizing all of those advantages. And so Milan was fundamentally a very overcrowded city of districts, which, you know, had very kind of filthy, dank, narrow lanes, uh, that, that allowed very little sunlight in. And so, uh, it, frankly, it, sh- it shouldn't be a surprise that there was a plague. And, um, so it was Leonardo who identified, uh, the issue to be a, a sanitary one, you know, that had to do with a sanitary, sanitation problem. And he, um, did a variety of things. He invented uh, laboratories with revolving windows for ventilation and underground uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, canals to carry away human waste. But uh, after the plague subsided, and it took about two years, he presented all of these incredibly imaginative, innovative advancements to uh Lovicchio in the hopes to be funded and Lovicchio wasn't interested. So nothing came of them. And he moved on to other things because Leonardo was in a constant forward motion of invention.
2: Another early topic here has been the act of invention. What were some of da Vinci's renowned inventions that were in his journal? And also, can you describe his journaling?
3: Well, I mean, what's he? This is somebody who I believe is the, is the most, or has was and continues to be, I think, the most creative genius of human history. And he was in. He was, you know, what what propelled him always was this insatiable curiosity. So, if you you know, there are countless notebooks. There are if you see them in actuality uh which i have seen you know they were there was a a a display of them in the louvre um at the at his 500th year anniversary of his death i should say and they are remarkably small they're 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 kind of tiny frankly and as you may know he wrote uh in cursive handwriting that was reversed so you'd have to hold it up to the mirror to you know to begin to understand it um And it was they were the 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 point was that he was these notebooks were were for his purposes. He wasn't particularly interested in sharing uh, any of these inventions. Um, But and they and they they are so numerous, it's impossible to give you a figure. But they ranged from lifting gear that would operate by air pressure. Uh, new methods of heating including a stove uh, uh, he, he invented a fly, you know the precursor to a flying machine and swimming belts that were again precursors to life vests but he also invented war machinery so you know he invented a kind of tank he 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 envisioned deadly gas that could be used to kill armies so he was extremely um agnostic in terms of of uh, the kind of inventions that he he devised
2: what about celia's reputation historically what is it about her that made her the perfect portrait
3: well you know as as i said it's it's extremely i mean she didn't know she was she has not been historically Depicted in any whole, you know uh, holistic way, so you know she's identified probably. I, I'm convinced of it, but you know the confirmation you know is yet to be made that she was the subject of this portrait. Um, she is referred to by the court poets um, as this quite extraordinary young woman, and so we know a little bit, bit about her. Um, for that reason. Um, she is, if you if you you don't have to study the portrait very long to to see that she was staggeringly beautiful and very self-confident at an early age. And I think that's what makes the portrait so compelling, that you're seeing more than her physical a physical rendition of her, um, you're seeing, you know, something rather more profound. She, you can, you know, you have a sense of who she is by looking at that portrait, I believe.
2: In coins, there were portraits on coins. How are some of those made? <laughs> well, the,
3: the, the portraits on the coins, uh, were, were fundamentally kind of calling cards, frankly, or an indication that, you know, you were an important personage. And um, so often was the case, obviously, that these the dukes would have them made. Um, uh, but, it, you know, in the case to which I referred, it was Isabel d'Estate, who was a very formidable, another one of these very formidable women, who was quite determined to leave her mark, and so she had a coin, and they're, you know, basically they're, you know, they're, I wouldn't imagine that they would be any larger than a fifty-cent coin in America. But um, she had her, you know, she wanted to project uh, a an image of herself that was, you know, very serious. Uh, she fa- deliberately faced in the direction as men do when, you know, uh, you know uh, that were depicted on these coins uh, in the same direction. So she was taken quite seriously and she looks as though she's fairly fierce, frankly. Um, but, uh, you know, really no nonsense. And so, um, that, that's how the coins were used. The intention was to, you know, indicate a certain level of prestige and authority and they were distributed, you know, left to, distributed to other important families. And, and, um, so that, that was their fundamental purpose.
2: Why did the Habsburgs become part of your history of the painting?
3: Well, you know the it, the, the, the years the two, the over the two centuries the picture was went missing. Um there are rumors as to where it might have gone. And so what what makes it rather unusual is that Leonardo was always famous in other words during his lifetime he was famous and almost always is the case most especially with a famous painter um it's copied you know the 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 he 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 painted relatively few pictures so he there were 15 uh four of, uh, of which were portraits of women and in this particular case, with this particular portrait, it was never reproduced, and so you know, almost always is the case that you know young painters will 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 copy it, or at the very least, it will be rendered in you know in a, in a, an illustration or or you know uh, and 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 nothing. It just so that that is extremely unusual. So the 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 reason why there there's. Spanish Speculation that it might have somehow made its way to, or an awareness of it might have made its way to the UK, is that there is, uh, when um, uh, uh, Holbein was drawing the Thomas More family, um, one of the daughters, to the furthest to the right, um, to, has exactly the same pose as Cecilia does in, Uh, lady with an ermine and so I don't think frankly it left Italy but you know it's a very unusual situation where that unique pose uh, reappears you know in another in another uh, portrait or this was a group portrait so that that's the that's how you know people are allow themselves to speculate on whether or not it actually made its way or an awareness of it you know was known in in the UK.
2: And then also France, I know, or we know that da Vinci was in a valley of France.
3: Yes. um, He, uh, his last patron was the King of France and he left Italy for the first time in his life uh, when he was 60 and he traveled to the Loire Valley, which is, was his last resting place, so to speak. And that is where he died. And, um, What's interesting is that he he often never really kept he kept on working on portraits, and so the portrait that he took with him that he was still working on was the Mona Lisa. It was a um commissioned portrait he couldn't he felt as though he couldn't quite get it right um he ironically or you know he he kept on changing the smile and so when he finally finished it in France. The man who commissioned it, who was the, the, the husband of the woman in the portrait, um, decided he didn't like it, or I don't, it, was, it was too late, or I don't know why it was just, it was never then sent back. It was kept in France, and, and the king either bought it or appropriated it, which is why it is in the Louvre in, in Paris.
2: What did Poland's downfall then have to do with the portrait?
3: well you know poland has been um he, it's been assaulted from every conceivable um border it has by every all its surrounding um so-called neighbors and uh there were three partitions of poland um fundamentally it was russia and and um uh germany um and um, so in uh, Austria, and so um, there was a point at which, after the Third Partition, there was simply no more Poland. I mean, it l- literally was, you know, erased from the map. And the aristocratic, fa- the noble family that 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 owned the portrait uh, initially hid it. Um, um you know when the russians um uh came through to par- you know partition yet more land and eventually it was it, it was literally sent uh, in exile to paris where um the family then um was living and they bought um this remarkable uh estate you know it's it's the hotel lambert on the isle saint louis and so this this portrait was there for 30 years without people really uh, was certainly the Parisians not knowing about it. Um, it then came back to Poland when things settled down only to be hidden again in anticipation of the first world war. It then came out of hiding and went, you know, right back in, um, in anticipation of Hitler's invasion of Poland it was then um put on hitler's you know wish list he um made very clear to the uh, gestapo that, that he wanted it found and they eventually located it and um he declared it you know his property but he, he then loaned it to um his kind of lieutenant his right hand person who was in poland um as the as the um the the um um general the governor general which w- was his title uh and his remit was to you know destroy the 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 polish uh culture um to uh, you know um enslave many of its citizens and to kill as many jews as possible and so this really coagulation of human evil by the name of hans frank uh considered himself a a great art expert and and very much wanted this painting to hang above his uh, his desk, and Hitler loaned it to him. And w- at the end of the war, uh, when the Allies, you know, uh, um, came after him, they found him in you know with a. In a he he fled to his Bavarian um, country estate. And they found him in the, you know, in a back room. And the only other thing in the room with him was this picture. So, um, it, you know, it, it's had the most remarkable history.
2: And why did the November uprising fail?
3: Well, it was, to, the, you know, without sounding too glib, it was just crushed by the Russians. I mean, they they, they didn't really have a chance. Um, and um, I mean, the polls, it's an interesting... I learned a great deal that i that i, I didn 't know frankly um, and i 've lived you know in Europe for quite a while, so I felt slightly ashamed that i wasn 't as well informed as I should have been about poland but they 're incredibly admirable people and they and they have never never surrendered. Um, and I think that's why, even during the Second World War, where they were literally hiding, they were, you know, uh, uh, it was an underground effort, the, the, whoever wasn't being, you know, incarcerated or killed, they were hiding in the forest um, and attacking, you know, as best they could. Uh, unlike, with all due respect to the French, unlike the French, they they never surrendered to the Nazis. And I my sense is that one of the reasons they were very early to to, to step in and support the Ukrainians crossing the 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 you know the the border into Poland was because they they have an oral history of of, of what it's like, frankly, but I find them you know apart from the policies that I don't necessarily agree with uh you know in a contemporary sense. Uh, because they they really have shifted to the right of things but but the people are uh, you know have proven time and again to be very brave frankly this episode is brought to you by sax.com at
0: sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you
1: by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: How did Ball at Warsaw examine the painting in 1952? Um, and how also beyond that, 1952, what did they do to restore the painting? And also what is the cradle?
3: Well I'll answer the last year last question first. A cradle is I mean the to, just to step back uh, often was the case that most especially with Leonardo uh, pictures and, and 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 pictures that were painted you know in that time period 14th and 15th century they were painted on panels. So the lady with an ermine is painted on a walnut panel, a wooden panel. And unsurprisingly, uh, over the course of you know the many years, um, it either is warped or, um, and so the um, a cradle is a dev- is a is a wooden device that that's attached in the back that frankly holds holds the the the, the, the picture together um, and prevents further warp warping and. Um, you know, so it 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 makes it sturdy, and you often you, you're not seeing it when you're looking at a picture because you're you know you, you you don't you don't see what's behind it, but often is the case that 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 a cradle has been attached at some point. Um, and to answer your, I think it was the second question. It, uh, the the ball was in fact was at the National Gallery in Washington, and so what happened was after the Cold War. Um, the the uh, it was still uh, you know theoretically the uh, because it was in uh, Poland uh, during you know Stalin's communism um, it was technically speaking after after Stalin died still a property of, of still a Russian property so to speak um, but when the when the uh, uh, the Cold War um, thawed so to speak in the early fifties the agreement was to send it was the first time this picture was ever seen in the West. And it was, um, it was sent to the national gallery in Washington. And at the time um, they took full advantage of it because they had very sophisticated equipment. And this fellow ball was in charge of, uh, of, of examining it very closely with all this, you know, rather more sophisticated equipment. And he, confirmed the fact that it was on a walnut panel. He confirmed the fact that originally the background was a light kind of muted gray, uh, but nobody understands why or when it was painted over. And um, to answer your, I guess, first question last, uh, you—they never during the course of examining this portrait, was it ever um, corrected or, there was no real need and and so it is completely original it, it does not unlike some other pictures by leonardo um it, it was never um you know touched afterwards it, there wasn't any revision or or you know other than this fact that the background was repainted in in ways that nobody can quite explain.
2: What museums emerged out of this timeline, especially in Poland, but also throughout Europe, and what museum displays were most notable for you?
3: Well, as soon as, as I said, as soon as the Cold War subsided, it started to travel. And, you know, the criticism was that it was traveling too much, but it did come it actually went to Moscow to uh, not the Hermitage but the Pushkin Museum in Moscow. It then was allowed to come to the National Gallery in Washington. It came back to America. It went in to all places. Uh, uh, although I, I don't mean to sound condescending, but it was unusual to 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 learn that it went to Milwaukee. I'm not sure. <laughs> it went to Dallas. It it went it went to Italy. It so it it moved around until finally um experts you know were concerned about the fact that it was on a plane so much because the altitude absolutely disrupts you know the 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 paint pigments and so on and so forth it's not it's not a great thing to do is to to move it around to that degree and so the last time it it was it was shipped anywhere was this remarkable um uh, Exhibit of Leonardo's work while he was in Milan here in London at the National Gallery. And even with this uh, very important. Exhibit at the Louvre uh, several years ago to mark his 500th uh, anniversary of his death, they, it was not sent, which was a disappointment to the Louvre, but uh, completely understandable. So I don't think it's going to move again. I think it's it's in Krakow, and that's where he's going, where it's going to stay for, uh, you know, for many, many, many years.
2: How is the history of Hitler's Nazism part of his love of art? Do you? know of Hitler's history as a fledgling artist?
3: Well, he wanted to be an artist, but he was rejected. Um, and I think that he never quite got over that. But he um, he then thought of himself as a great art collector. He uh, thought that that would be an indication of the, his level of sophistication. Um, And that then influenced his uh, coterie of, you know, uh, girling. It was any number of people who surrounded him then also wanted the prestige of, you know, owning um, uh, looted, by the way, um, you know, masterpieces. And so um, there was a kind of a, you know, a, a hideous well-oiled machinery that was established to loot um, and steal art, and it was, it, you know, it was incredibly efficient and really, frankly, horrifying. But um, a great deal of it was returned. Some of it is missing. Uh, some of it has been destroyed. But you know, they 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 basically emptied out ninety percent of the masterpieces in Europe during the course of, of the war
2: and what else happened to the painting of lady with an ermine during world war 2
3: well as i said it was once it was found by the gestapo uh you know that which was that the order came from hitler it was it was given on loan to hans frank and then it was retrieved by uh, the american um you know, the Americans who tracked him down, it was then, um, a warehouse. Um, unfortunately, this all transpired immediately after the war, when basically Stalin was given Poland. And, um, and so he thought of it as bourgeois. So it didn't really, uh, you know, it was warehoused yet again, but at least it was safe. And then in the fifties, it was allowed to be seen. Um, and so that, that's, you know, that's what happened um, d- during and immediately after the war, the Second World War.
2: Were there fears that the painting would be lost? I know it wound up in America for a time. And you mentioned Milwaukee.
3: No, it w- it was moved around um, to museums. So it was never lost. It was hidden a lot, you know. Um, but once after the Cold War and and once it was officially returned to the family, um, it it, w- it was never unsafe. It was just, it was precarious to be moving it around, but it was also, it was always guarded. And, um, and in that way, you know, it, it was, it, it was safe.
2: And since we've been talking about the painting of Lady with an ermine, what else are you working on? Uh, do you have anything else planned? And do you recommend for readers, or listeners to this podcast to maybe look at some of your other work.
3: Oh well, that's very kind of you to ask. Actually, I am. I. I. I you know, this is what happens, uh, and it's not a complaint. But it's like anything. You know, you work on. You work very hard to make things look easy, and then you wait for. <laughs> You know it, whether it's a book or a, a movie or a theater performance. You you know you kind of wait for the reviewers to weigh in, and then you wait for the public to weigh in, and then you then you end up doing it all over again. So I I I have moved. Uh, I'm grateful for it, but I have moved from one book to the next without any uh, you know break. Frankly, so my my next book was signed uh, shortly before this current book came out. And it is a, again, it's a narrative nonfiction um, about this extraordinary American woman who was born after the civil war, dirt poor in Ohio, who became a child clairvoyant. Um, And then, and then she ran for president and she started a, 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 a brokerage house and she, you know, traveled across the country to the gold rush in California. And she ended up in here in the UK, uh, during, you know, for the last 50 years of her life. And in ways that are just kind of staggering, she ended up suing the British Museum for libel, which is how I heard about her. So again, this is a story of an individual who, you know, it, it is is weirder than any fiction you could possibly invent. And um, and that is due to the publisher in another year and a half. And so that's what I'm working on now. i'm I'm a bit of a generalist, so I don't what I write about are subjects that interest me or I, I can't figure out. and I, I'm, I'm trying to better understand myself. And in in the process, I, I, I hope to engage the reader you know, to join me in the journey, so to speak. So the first book I wrote was a novel. Um, I then moved to China to to write a book for for the uh, Chinese about Western business etiquette or, you know, deportment or whatever. And I was there for a year. The book was censored. Um, so I was there for a year until it came out, and then it became a bestseller, and is, I think, still used by the University of Peking, uh, the MBA program. But while I was there, I realized that my own value system had nothing to do with, uh, you know, the way uh, the the Chinese um, did business, uh, or frankly, anything else. My, My mind was a very You know, predictable kind of Judeo-Christian sense of right and wrong, and what I realized was there was a great deal of what I would call moral relativism uh, that was baked into a you know into the mentality. uh, For all of the obvious reasons, they're you know it's they're Buddhists for the most part. There is no uh, religion per se, and they they just have an entirely different approach um, to such a degree that. There, if you if you look at the old Chinese, Mao um, you know simplified it during the Cultural Revolution. But with the old Chinese, the word for white has got another character in it, which is the character for black. And so there is no black and white. There's just this kind of gray area. And I and I what what prompted me to to write my next book was the realization this was um, you know that. Uh, that oh, first of all, I wrote a a, a, um, a memoir of my year in China called "I Stand Corrected," and then after that, my next book was about modern morality because, <clears throat> excuse me, I realized that this was when Trump was kind of bubbling up to the surface as a as a possible presidential candidate, and I and I began to think that well, maybe my own values didn't weren't applicable anymore. In my own country, and so I, I decided to interview people who had made very unusual moral choices in business, in politics, in any number of things, and then um, and then I fell upon this 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 portrait. So you know, I go from one thing to the next as a generalist, but I as, as somebody who 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 you know is is interested and and trying to figure it out myself.
2: And if someone wants to go see the painting, how should they do that? Going to Krakow?
3: Yeah, if they want to see it in person, that's the only way they're going to do it. They'd have to go to Krakow, Poland, which, by the way, is a wonderful trip. And it's a wonderful city. So I would, but, you know, um, I mean, obviously you can see any number of images of it you just have to Google and what comes up in public domain, you know, is a very high res image of it. And you can see how, how compelling it
2: is. Do you have any final thoughts for the NBN audience?
3: No, I'm just very encouraged that, you know, people are reading. (laughs) I used to be a book publisher. And so I'm now on the other side of the table, so to speak, and things have changed so dramatically, you know since I used to publish and edit books, and I'm even more appreciative of the writers now that I am writing myself but i i you know i um I'm very encouraged that people are 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 reading um i I'm equally concerned, you know, well, I I should use the word appalled, but I'm trying to modify my language here, that that there are books being banned. I I, I could not have imagined that happening in America, but it is. So, you know, that's happening as well.
2: New Books Network and Nathan Moore thank Eden Collinsworth for an interview on her book, What the Ermine Saw, The Extraordinary Journey of Leonardo da Vinci's Most Mysterious Portrait. To hear more podcast episodes on history or other topics, please go to the website at newbooksnetwork.com.